And so the N of one case that you, if you ever have it is already too many. It's not something that you can then address after that issue like we can with other adverse events. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode seven with our physician guest, Shri Komanduri from Northwestern Medicine, who will provide us a historical perspective on duodenoscopes dating back to 2014. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Good afternoon, Dr. Komandori. Welcome to Endocast. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you here. This is uh, one of my, actually, this is my second trip since the COVID outbreak, and so it's nice I got to go back home towards Philadelphia and then come to one of my favorite cities, which is Chicago, and spend some time with you and, and a couple of colleagues. And uh, I'm just super happy to be here. So for those of you that don't know Dr. Komandori, and I imagine there's not many out there, but if you don't, Dr. Komandori is the medical director of Northwestern's GI lab and director of interventional endoscopy. He has published over 100 manuscripts in gastroenterology. He's the current chair for the AGA Center of GI Innovation and Technology. And if you haven't downloaded the Endoscopy Now app, I would strongly recommend it. Dr. Komandori is actually the mastermind behind that app, which is a comprehensive resource to help all GI doctors with education, clinical research, and to help find training opportunities in your area. It's an excellent resource, Endoscopy Now. So now that I'm out of breath (laughs) introducing you, I have my first question for you which is a bit of a curveball, Dr. Komodori. Where were you the night of November 2nd, 2016? No, I'm not sure. Uh, I have to think about that one. In reality, I was uh, uh, in tears in my house at about 1 a.m. Central Time when the Cubs won the World Series. And as a lifelong diehard fan, that was uh, still the highlight of my life in terms of, uh, I guess, non-work-related events. I was uh, ironically in Chicago at the same time. Uh, I was in a hotel at a Boston Scientific meeting. But that was the first World Series in how many years? Uh, 108 years. Actually, at that point, it was, uh, I may be off there. Is it 108? Yeah, 108 years. Yeah, it was a special time to be in the city of Chicago. That's that's for sure. Uh, And now we're in a unique baseball time as well. Uh, I'm pulling for the Dodgers this year, just so you know. Um, So... Take me back a little bit. I want to learn a little bit more about med school and your residency and then how you ultimately decided on interventional endoscopy, which is a space that's just continuing to grow and evolve so much. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, I was in, at the University of Miami in Florida uh, for medical school and, and on back to Chicago after that. And uh, even in medical school, I, I chose internal medicine more for a procedurally driven field. Uh, I was very interested actually in surgery, and uh, I think a lot of this, as it does in any career, is based on your mentorship and you know who you run into, who you connect with, and just happened to have fantastic uh, GI mentors uh, when I was in medical school who really excited that part uh, of my interest. And once I got into residency and fellowship uh, up at Rush in Chicago, started to really kind of uh, get comfortable with procedural-based fields. And, and on top of that, the 
innovation related to endoscopy uh, and how things constantly evolve and how we're pushing the envelope uh, was more attractive than standard, you know, uh, patient interactions, which are still important. And that kind of pushed me in that direction. And really the forefront of the innovation was with advanced endoscopy, uh, specifically at that time with ERCP in the U.S. and things like that. So that that kind of got my attention and I found myself to be, you know, uh, to have the skills to do it. And I think the rest just sort of spirals. But I think it's kind of where you are in time and who you meet sometimes. And it's not really a dramatic decision or a, a, a big lifelong choice that we make. It's sometimes a momentary interaction that can change everything. Who were some of your mentors that you mentioned? Just curious. <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, so in medical school, um, there's actually uh, somebody who's uh, interestingly not a proceduralist, but a probably one of the best GI thinkers uh, and uh, how he handled sort of differential diagnosis and bedside exam at the time. His name was R.V. Rogers. He was one of the He's recognized by societies recently as sort sure. of like one of the gurus of sort of GI. Um, and so that it was, you know, people like that and then kind of moving through um, just seeing a lot of our leaders, you know, at the time, people like Peter Cotton you know, all these types of people that you sort of aspire to be um, uh, and other endoscopists who were just developing the advanced endoscopy field when I was out at fellowship, you know, about, you know, eight, 17, 18 years ago. Um, and things were starting to just, to, you know, kind of, you know, peak at that point. Like if you think about it from early, the turn of the century there to now has been probably the most development we've ever had in endoscopy because um, we really were pretty immature in around the year 2000. Um, so kind of that, that uh, sort of drive and that growth in all the, all the endoscopy and, and, and I think from a company perspective, you guys were involved in a lot of that, and your growth has probably reflected that in the past 20 years. So I think that that was really exciting, and I think it continues to be exciting with as innovation uh, grows even faster now. So speaking of fellowship programs and fellowship training, as the director of a therapeutic endoscopy program in one of the top academic centers around the country, I've heard a little bit about your mindset around training new gastroenterologists. Can you share with the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot to be said. Training is very different now, and I think the average fellow in gastroenterology is not um, no fault of their own, but due to pressures related to pr productivity, uh, due to uh, you know the certain procedural sets being referred to advanced endoscopies, endoscopists, uh, a lot of general fellows are not getting trained on some of the procedures, whether it's you know large polyps or even putting in you know, feeding tubes, some of the things that we consider baseline skills. And so this is a, a problem in the set that we have to train now in, as you get into advanced endoscopy fellowships, it, it translates, right? So some of the fellows are not as far as maybe they would have been years ago. Uh, but I think to that end, one of the challenges we have is advanced endoscopy now has become so, uh, you know, such an involved area that it's not about pancreatic biliary endoscopy alone. It used to be we had an ERCP fellowship or an EUS fellowship, right? Now you're talking about tissue resection. You're talking about anti-reflux procedures. You're talking about so many things. You can't train all these fellows in one spot. So one of the things we try to do is uh, twofold. One is we, we identify core groups of procedures, and it still remains ERCP and EUS. And and we want to get that clinical uh, excellence from our fellows. And I think one thing we can say from Northwestern is all of our fellows are some of the best endoscopists now in the country. From there, 
who try to, uh, you know, identify an interest or subspecialize the, the fellow a little bit more, uh, whether that's ESD, whether that's, you know, some of the different types of uh, maybe obesity. Um, and to do that, we also involve uh, our simulation center. So we use, you know, so simulation is something that has been so often overlooked, but I think even for general fellows and especially advanced fellows, having the ability to use a sim lab to, whether it's a pig model uh, or something even from a virtual reality side, to go down and reproduce some of those skill sets that you're just not gonna get anymore, even in a year advanced fellowship, you can only do so much. But I think we're augmenting that training using simulation. I think that will be the wave of the future, especially when we get into thing, a discussion about something like surgical endoscopists, which are a big, uh, a part of not only I think what we're seeing in endoscopy and the next innovation is you know you're going to potentially even see a hybrid type of a person between surgery and GI you're going to need simulation you're going to need other avenues of training physicians to do certain procedures because we continue to innovate we continue to grow our purview and you just can't do it all in a year time frame I'm still amazed that you're able to train on all those different procedures in 12 months yeah. so Today, Dr. Komandori is going to give us a little bit of a history lesson, and it's an important topic, one that continues to evolve and uh, continues to be really challenging for all nurse managers and ERCP physicians and technicians that are responsible for cleaning scopes, but today he's going to teach us his perspective on duodenoscope reprocessing. So the first question, I want to start at baseline because that's a good place for me to start. MDROs and CRE are terms that get thrown around a lot, uh, the GI lab. Can you walk us through those two acronyms, what they mean, and the impact that they have on gastroenterology? Yeah, and I think, you know, even before I do that, a good point to be made is, um, uh, and I know we're, this is a, a part of a series that you guys are doing, and I think it's important to point out that uh, it's more than just reprocessing. It's more a historical context of why we, uh, why we really should care. And I think that's a, a good way to look at this. As as gastroenterologists, as I'm sure many of the, those of you listening are, um, it's very difficult sometimes to acknowledge a problem when it doesn't affect you. And, and ironically, this this has a very direct relationship to COVID in a way, right? Sure. So and, and not to you know in this time we're in, you know, we're as physicians this is not difficult to understand the, the gravity of the situation. Um, but, you know, as a common person in the community, you don't see the disease. It's not there. It's not prevalent. Um, so it doesn't exist. And so I think we have to avoid that pitfall as well when we talk about duty and scope related infections, because it's very easy for us to say we've never had an infection in our hospital or our system. It doesn't matter. Right. And I think we have to look beyond that. And I think it's a very similar, strange analogy, but it's there. So, but to that point, the basis of all that is driven around <clears throat> what you've brought up. And I think having that baseline understanding is important. Uh, and so the first concept is this idea of the bigger umbrella, which are this MDROs, which are multi-drug resistant organisms, which is really simply nothing more than bacteria that over time have become resistant to standard antibiotics. A lot of that is because of us as physicians and overuse of antibiotics. And I think uh, some of the points behind that are, are have caused us to deliberately slow down in terms of new antibiotic production um, because of resistance and what we might be creating creating and that that can actually be detrimental to other new infections that we need antibiotics for 
So that's one piece. And then when you kind of come more specific within that, you know, there's multitude of organisms. There's specifically one multi-drug resistant organism, which is the CRE. And this is a carbapenem-resistant enterobacter. And that's, uh, enterobacter is the family, obviously, as you know. And, um, and so this one has come to light a little bit more because it's especially resistant. Uh, and it's also been the infection that we've seen uh, in certain outbreaks associated with duodenoscopes. And obviously with those, we've had deaths, we've had you know, significant illnesses. And although being rare, once this infection is within certain patient cohorts or subsets of patients, it clearly has proven deadly. And that's why we're here having this discussion today. So as a follow-up to that, if I'm a physician practicing ERCP, what is the impact of multi-drug resistant organisms and CRE? What, what does that mean to a physician that's practicing ERCP? Yeah, it's a great question, and it, 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 it's, again, challenging because some physicians may answer that question, it doesn't mean anything to me, right? And it, it's, you're talking about a possibility of such a, you know, a low rate of this occurring, and, uh, and we've done ERCP for, you know, 50 years, and there's not been anything anywhere near us. So, uh, but this is a unique situation because in, in certain scenarios, you know, we talk about adverse events or complications, you can have a patient with pancreatitis, you can have a perforation. It's going to happen and it's acceptable and you don't really need to change anything. You know, you, you're, as long as it's not happening too often. You can't say that about this infection. So this is, um, you know, there's an acceptance in the medical field, especially in our country, that when you go in for a procedure that, whether you want to say sterility or, or, or the cleanliness of the procedure itself is never going to be an issue. And so the N of one case that you, if you ever have it is already too many. It's not something that you can then address after that issue like we can with other adverse events. So this is a scenario that you're not going to have a multitude of events to go back and analyze, but you never can have one. And once, you know, those are the centers that have had them and they realize this, the impact has been dramatic. So as a gastroenterologist, it's imperative that we understand A, what these organisms are, and then B, it is essential that you do everything we can that's within reason, and that's some of the things we'll talk about, uh, to prevent that from ever happening. Because now we have lessons have been learned. And so this is, a, this is something that in the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, we should never see an infection again. You know, and that's, that may not be practical, but we really shouldn't because we have enough information and now we have technology that is addressing some of those issues, uh, and I think to prevent that from ever happening to those centers who've never had one. So speaking of some of the changes and making adjustments, what has Northwestern done to pivot in response to growing concerns around scope reprocessing? Yeah, so the, the initial step is having a team who understands the issue and who's sort of, uh, you know, talking to each other, and I think that starts with uh, or infectious disease or infection control group. And we luckily have had that ongoing for many years just as part of nothing to do with these bugs, but just as a tracking mechanism. And so not necessarily culturing and doing other things as of yet, but we had a team that tracked hospital-acquired infections and, and traces, you know, it's this contact tracing again concept, uh, back to, you know, what happened, where could it have come from? So I think having that foundation and that, you know, emphasis is critical. So you need to have that those people as a baseline. Then it's your GI lab, it's your manager of the lab, it's your physicians who are doing these procedures who need to work and look at what we're doing. And so some of the 
most basic things are human driven, right? So what, what can we avoid with human error? And there's been a lot of technology in terms of, you know, we have created step-by-step, -step, you know, definitive ways for technicians to clean scopes and we have high level reprocessing. Uh, obviously you have even higher levels in terms of, you know, ETOH and sterility, but those things are not so, you know, they're expensive, they have, uh, they have potential other side effects, as we know, uh, even to society and the environment. So those are, not, those are not the way to go. But when you get down to it, you know, people have installed cameras and there's some new cool software to kind of help technicians do these, because there is a lot of manual cleaning that we still are gonna have to go through and we still struggle with, with doing scopes, especially uh, as of today. And we all, as a group, as a system, as a hospital, the interest has to be there for everyone to work together to help the technicians to find creative solutions, at least in that reprocessing side. We can get, you know, the second part of this is also the scope side, but the reprocessing side, to do whatever we can do. We all, we all now culture uh, on some level. Uh, we all know that that's fairly useless, right? And that's a problem because maybe we culture whatever we physically can, whenever we can, and we're randomly selecting scopes for this process. We also don't know where the infection is, and we know that infection can be anywhere within the duodenal scope. It's some, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on the elevator, uh, and that is a, uh, admittedly a big part of this. But there have been other studies showing that infection can occur in other parts of the scope. So it's too nebulous. It's a, it's an area that we can't easily access uh, within these scopes. But as far as reprocessing, I think this all starts with having that multidisciplinary team, and it's not something, and to be frank, that it, it's easy to care about. Again, the infection is not present in front of us. It's not an exciting part of my career to think about cleaning of the scopes. You know, I didn't go into the field to be thinking about that. You know, that's somebody else's job, but now it's actually our job. So on that note, what has the FDA said? I mean, what are the steps that they've taken over the last five years to help address some of the issues? So, you know, this is obviously the initial recognition of these outbreaks uh, which have come about over the last 10 years uh, from small to larger and then finally uh, forcing the hand of our regulatory bodies to put in some plan of action and that's really the FDA and so they you know the first step was analyzing and understanding what was going on looking at these infections across multiple centers um, and obviously these are very scope dependent and independent uh, uh, of the companies and the different uh, 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 duty and scopes that we have, and that's been identified. And so not only that was understanding where the infections are coming from, what are the true rates uh, of infection, and then putting together plans of action to have companies making duty and scopes to assess the different factors. And so over the past five years, that's happened. We've heard some of these uh, statements issued by the FDA, some of which were initially to get gastroenterologists to understand there is a problem and then to provide us with more information about the source of infection and the incidence of infection, uh, specifically with some of these post-marketing studies looking at surveillance. And when looking at both the human factor and the scope factor, and again, we talked a little bit about the human factors and these so many steps and having people come in and watch and evaluate how technicians are cleaning the scopes. And it, it's to a point where nobody can do this perfectly. You know, it's a very robotic type of uh, performance and you're relying on technicians who just are not gonna be able to do this at a level that solves, that can you know take that issue out of the equation. And then when you start looking at just actually the scope itself and the actual rate of infection, you know, we thought this was very low. 
uh, and then actually with the most recent you know post-marketing surveillance this looked like it was higher at a rate of about 5.4 percent um, which is now you're talking numbers that are much more palpable and tangible for us as physicians and and we're not talking about patient infections but just from a scope perspective to have contaminated scopes to that degree and having some of the nebulous nature of where the infection actually is coming and the possibility almost of finding those infections with standard culturing techniques, we're in a big conundrum. Yeah, and in fact, it's my understanding the initial thought process of the FDA was that scope contamination rate was going to be much lower than what they had found. Yeah. So can you walk us through the actual post-market surveillance study? I know you touched on it just a second ago, but my understanding is in 2015, they embarked, uh, they mandated all of the scope manufacturers uh, conduct post-market surveillance studies, right? Correct. Yeah, so I think it, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's regardless of who you are, what type of scopes you have, but from a duty, anybody sort of manufacturing duty and scope uh, is, is looking at these two sides, the, not only the human factors related to the reprocessing of the scopes and all the steps that each company has laid out, uh, and those are being audited. And then the other side is actually the rate of infection within the scope itself um, through a multitude of ways of measuring. So uh, I think that's an evolution. And it's also going to be now extended into some of the solutions that, that companies have come up with uh, at least for things like uh, the elevator and the distal attachment solutions that we've seen coming into market. Uh, because what we need to understand is does that rate, for example, the 5.4% of infection decrease with some of these solutions to a point where we need to get to, which is close to zero. And you actually alluded to my next question, but you know the FDA actually made an announcement not that long, it was late 2019, which urged hospitals towards disposable components that make scope reprocessing easier or eliminates scope reprocessing. What sort of impact do you see this technology making, spe specifically the distal end detachable scope? Yeah. So, so I think what you're alluding to now is that we've gone through a process. We've identified there's a problem. It's potentially a bigger problem than we can even identify clinically. Uh, and what the FDA said is there has to be a solution. So. Everyone out there who's in, a, you know, in the device world start coming up with solutions. And so there were sort of two avenues to go about this. And I think one, the first avenue is let's take what we have and fix what we think is the highest, uh, you know, sort of the area of the scope what's generating the issue, which everyone perceived was the, the elevator or the distal portion. Um, and the other side of this, which we can get back to, is then what about just having a scope that we can throw away, right? Having a disposable single-use scope. And so both avenues, as we know, have been uh, embarked on. And I think the simplest solution, obviously, is, and probably a cost-effective solution, is if I can just take my scope and change out the end or do something. And, and, and I shouldn't say cost-effective, because obviously this is a new line of scopes, too, so there is a bigger cost associated with it. But at the same point, mentally, I'm used to these scopes. And I think part of this discussion, which may not be all for today, is, you know, when you start talking about single-use scopes, you're, you're changing the scope completely. And what does that mean for me as a gastroenterologist? And when I do my procedure, does that change anything for me? And that's a question that's uh, worth discussing. But when you talk about solutions that change out just a portion of a scope I'm used to, then there's no concern from that standpoint of getting the procedure done. And the hope will be that that distal attachment solves the issue. 
Now, the problem with all these solutions, and from the FDA's perspective, is how do you study this? Because the incidence of the infection is so low that you can't look at a solution and say, well, hey, I had no infections in the next year, so it works, right? Because you went from zero to zero, or you may have gone from one to zero, right? Fair so, point. So there's no way to study that outcome, and that's gonna be a, a, an issue for us. Like there's, you know, when you're looking at solutions for doing a scope infection, whether it's reprocessing, whether it's new scopes, scope parts, uh, or sort of distal attachment pieces, or a single-use scope, how are you gonna compare all these? Is there any way we can, you know, there's no, even if we wanted to do a head-to-head -head study or look at what's the best solution, what is that final outcome? We don't have it, right? It's prevention of infection that's, we can't have even one, but is never gonna show its face, right? If the incidence is so low. So we struggle there a little bit, and I think, ultimately, as far as the future of those, uh, time will tell because I think you're getting into an environment where people are gonna have multiple choices of what they use as a solution. I think the most important step is that we make a choice and we understand that a solution is needed. Um, and then I think what we're gonna see is a mix of, you know, and, and that's I know probably coming in the further in your series here as discussion of how do we pick the solution that we wanna use uh, amongst the environment right now. But I think it will be a, uh, that's what the next few years will bring uh, in terms of some answers. Well put. Um, so now there are two single-use duodenoscopes cleared by the FDA. What's next? Where, where do we go from here with all this new technology available? It, it's a great point. I think it's going to be, there's going to be physician-driven factors that influence this. That's going to be how well can I do my procedure with a single-use scope. It's a new scope. It's a new way. There will be a learning curve. We know that. Uh, we do know from preliminary experience in humans that it's not as big as we thought. And procedures are getting done. So that's promising and that's exciting. <clears throat> There's gonna be patient-driven factors because patients are gonna have a preference. <clears throat> and whether or not we think that's the right way to look at this, the more and more sort of disposable scopes we get on the market, patients are gonna, if I'm a patient, of course I want that scope. Dr. Komandori, this has been great having you on Endocast. Um, it was well worth my time here. I know the audience is just going to get a lot out of this. Is there anything else you wanted to leave us with on this specific topic or anything else on your mind? No, thank you. I think this has been great. I think the, for those of you who are listening and who will continue with this series, I, I, the only thing I can uh, ask is that, that as a group, as, as, a, as all of us as gastroenterologists, that we take this seriously. And I think it's a uh, critical step that we can... Uh, uh, all come together on is to acknowledge the need for a solution. And I think that's the first step here. And if we can do that, you know, we'll let the science and, our, and the experience bear out over the next few years to tell us which direction we may want to go. And I think that's exciting because we do have a ton of solutions coming in to the market. And uh, I think that will be sort of the fruit of, uh, of this problem and hopefully the solution as we move forward. And I just want to get this last question on the record books, but uh, baseball playoffs start on Tuesday. Who goes deeper in the playoffs, Dodgers or the Cubs? Uh, no, no, uh, you can't even ask me that right now. If the Dodgers don't, then you should be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. They are loaded this year. Thanks again for coming on to Endocast, Dr. Komandori. It's great seeing you, and uh, I can't wait to get this published. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. 
The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sell, buy, or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France, 